Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the proud of labor this crown of thorns. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cross of Gold. Uh, here, as usual, is uh, Cyrus, your socialist brother, but with a little tweak in our regularly scheduled programming. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break from what, what you've come to expect from us here at Cross of Gold. We're taking a little bit of a hiatus with some scheduling stuff. Chase is very busy. I'm, I'm pretty busy as well. So we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, we have on the air live for the first time on the mic, our uh, good friend and producer, Alex. Uh, he is an old friend of mine, an old classmate. We have a a rich history. Um, don't read into that too much. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, finally, uh, finally able to get a little chance to, to speak with him. Alex and I are going to be you know, talking about some things that are uh, important to us and our development as, as leftists and socialists, uh, because a common question I get uh, from, from listeners and, and people, uh, fans of the show is, well, okay, I get, I get that you and Chase are different and have different views, and but, but how did that exactly happen? Uh, you know, wh- where did that that crossroads come? And uh, you know, I wanted to bring Alex on to talk about that a little bit and some of the things that influenced us and informed our our trajectory because he was a big part of that. Uh, so, welcome to the show, Alex. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well, Cyrus. Great to be here, and everyone. Uh, you know, I acknowledge that I'm not a blood brother, but I like to think of myself uh, as an extended member of the Capo family. So it's That's uh, right. <laughs> always a pleasure to be here. Yes, Alex is a spiritual brother to me. Uh, I've been through a lot. What many people probably don't know is, is uh, this is a fully long gray line podcast. Ooh, just saying that makes me <laughs> cringe a little bit. Rough to hear. Yeah. <laughs> but Alex and I were English majors together at West Point. Um, so for those of you with uh, conspiracy theories about West Point indoctrinating its students, that is not true. Um, uh, or yeah, yeah, it is true. Uh, but indoctrinating them uh, with uh, Marxist ideas and thoughts, that is decidedly untrue. Although we did get exposed to some of those ideas uh, during our time as, as literature majors. So, uh, but first I want to hear from you, Alex, just a little bit. Um, you know, from, from my perspective, obviously, our development into this school of political thought was sort of in parallel in a lot of ways, and, and our conversations informed a lot of the way I think. But how did it, how did it kind of start for you? What was, what was that process like? Well, you know, as you said before, there were not very many English majors or art, philosophy, and literature majors at West Point. So it was kind of a rarefied air we were in. Yeah, when we started, just uh, just as an aside, um, they, there weren't enough people in the uh, art, philosophy, and literature department for there to be separate majors for each of the uh, the topics listed above. Uh, so they they had to group all of us in together as one because there were so few. But it was, and, and yeah, rarefied air. 
and that being said, they hadn't had an art history teacher at West Point in like a decade before we were there. So it was really just philosophy of literature. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, uh, you know, you remember you and I first met in the woods. We were doing summer uh, cadet summer training. We were both uh, squad leaders for this exercise. And on the first day, I remember I'd been told that somebody had come in and had stirred the pot already just on the very first day that everyone was checking in. There was somebody there who's already causing trouble. They told us us, this guy came in, supposed to be in uniform. He came in without a haircut. He came in in a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops. And I said, oh, you can't be doing that. This is is the United States (laughs) military. That seems unwise. Seems unwise. And sure enough, that stunt did not make Cyrus a lot of friends right away. But just that first day, we, we introduced ourselves and found out we were both in the same major, which again, with you know having about 10 of us total, it was pretty unlikely that we never would have met up to that point. Um, but we uh, hit it off right away and spent the next six or whatever weeks just kind of picking each other's brains and uh and hanging out i i know at that time we were both getting real heavy into existentialist philosophy which i think is what brought us in in some small way towards this would you agree with that yeah i would say so i i I do remember that uh i remember being being a little bit bitter about being there in the first place um at the time i was i was even thinking of uh of leaving west point um, but then I ran into this, this guy who towered over me by a good, good six or so inches and, uh, was, uh, uh, the first actual English major I'd really, you know, spent any time with or, uh, or, or really, really met. And, uh, it was one, you're one of the first people that, uh, I encountered that, that had any good ideas in my opinion at, uh, <laughs> at West Point. <laughs> there, there weren't a lot. I was, uh, I was, I was a bit bitter at the time, but. Um, and definitely not happy to be out in the woods for, for six weeks, um, you, know, you know, in the sweltering heat of a New York summer. Um, but yeah, no, definitely uh, something we've covered a little bit on the podcast is sort of my, my forays into existentialism, which really began, you know, when I got to college, um, not through very much assigned reading. Uh, they, don't, they don't like to uh, spread those kind of lies among the uh, populace of the Corps of Cadets. But uh, yeah, things like, you know, the moviegoer and The Stranger, um, you know, some, some of those classic existentialist novels that were at the very least disruptive to my you know, conception of, of what, how the world works, of how you, we should be, you know, evaluating, you know, the institutions we're a part of, um, even if it was from a much more literary standpoint. Um, what, were, uh, what were some of those, those first experiences for you what were some of those like first books that got you i don't know on the on the train to heathendom <laughs> yeah well, i think um you know even even just to start to talk about like kierkegaard's fear and trembling you know this is a, a christian existentialist so that was more um you know having been raised conservative and christian myself that was kind of my kind of foray into that into that world and then uh just 
I think once you have allowed yourself to, to question the, uh, the philosophical parts of, of your kind of upbringing and your, your viewpoint on, on life and purpose and meaning, then that opens up a lot more avenues for you to start questioning other things that you've taken for granted for your entire life. Yeah, I think at the time we met, if I'm not mistaken, both of us, you know, still identified as being Christian. Um, and neither of us were, were socialists by by any means. Um, yeah, I think and, at my at my uh, in that period of, of like questioning everything, at one point, I would have called myself a libertarian, which would now in like 2021 is like a very cringe thing to say. Uh, <laughs> Hey, you know what? We were 20. So, you know, those age of consent laws were not, wasn't quite such a big age gap. I mean, that's the, that's like (laughs) peak libertarianism, right? Is uh, a white guy in their early twenties who wants fewer restrictions on the things that they're allowed to do. Yeah. It sounded good to me. I was like, Hey, I I got, I got all this in the bag. I don't know why we, uh, right. Why why we we want to restrict any of this. Things are going great for me. Yeah. Society's clearly been repressive and oppressive towards us. And I'd like less of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, (laughs) that was gradually being withered away and, and chipped away at by our time at West Point. Um, I think, you know, the, the idea that, uh, America and our, our finer institutions are a meritocracy um, and that, you know, the, the strongest and best and the most talented and the most intelligent are the ones that, that rise to the top was, in, from my perception, really challenged by, by going to West Point and, you know, I don't want to talk too bad about the institution, uh, but, well, I kind of do, but, uh, <laughs> but just to say that, uh, from my experience, the population of the Corps of Cadets wasn't, wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything that, you know, I, I had lots of friends in my public high school that I went to who I thought were just as smart, if not smarter than, than the average cadet you'd run into. And uh, if, if anything, more thoughtful, more, more curious about the world. And so it was, uh, I, I was lucky to run into you and find someone else who was like actually had that that same sort of mentality um so from there we uh you know began our you don't you don't choose your major until right before your your junior year so we didn't really start our english classes in earnest until uh after that summer uh but that was a you know a pretty tumultuous time period it was sort of the beginning of the end of the uh quote-unquote era of good feelings um you know, that, that was kind of precipitated during the Obama years uh, when, you know, things weren't exactly good, but there was a, a nice sheen, a uh, nice cover over, over the, the problems that were, were clearly boiling up in this country. And then as 2015 and 2016 started to roll around and, and the campaign started, that, that sort of happened at the exact same time, uh, you know, Bernie being introduced on the national stage was also the the same time that we started i was first introduced to any readings of of karl marx or any real actual analysis of of socialism or communism yeah it was my my junior year as part of our uh literature curriculum that i took the class that was just called uh criticism 
And that was very intimidating for me at first. I didn't feel much like being criticized, uh, <laughs> but, but we went into this class. And we I got plenty of that everywhere else at the yeah, academy. I was criticized quite a bit in that class because even as an English major, I didn't like to do a lot of the required reading. Um, and, and that instructor was, uh, he was no joke. Do you remember? Alex isn't what you would call studious. Or uh, diligent. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this in this class, yeah, it was the very first time that I had heard somebody talk about Marxist theory or materialist theory in, in a way that wasn't, you know, communism is a system in which you are told what you will do and everyone makes the same thing no matter how hard or how little they work. You know, it's, it's total equality, which really means oppression. That's what I'd been told. That's what I've been fed, you know, for my entire life, like most people are in the United States. And this was the first class where it was described differently. And this was just, uh, you know, an army lieutenant colonel who was doing his best to give all of these different theories we were learning their due. And so I don't know that a lot of the stuff that he was talking to us, he really, you know, internalized or believed, but, you know, he, he could sell a pitch. Yeah. And, he did a good job of, uh, of encapsulating the ideas he was trying to get across and, and pitching them as if he, you know, did believe them, but, you know, through, through a lot of further conversations with, the, <laughs> with that professor, I know that it wasn't exactly his, his belief system. Um, but just to hear them, you know, out loud for the first time or on the page, uh, I think, like you said, a lot of us grow up very anti-communist. We were libertarian. I, I would say I was libertarian when I entered that class yeah. um, or, or politically sort of homeless. Well, anything. and that's, that's a very emotional response to West Point, I think. It's just like turning towards libertarianism because you're like, I don't, I'm tired of people telling me what to do. <laughs> yes, exactly. I want to go live in a cabin in Wyoming and you just yeah. have this idea that you could certainly make it on your own in a cabin in yeah. Wyoming with you know, absolutely no knowledge of farming or hunting and gathering, but you know, you could do it, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I'm a, a little embarrassed to admit this, but I do have a Henry David Thoreau tattoo on my, on, on, on one of my arms and, uh, and a Whitman uh, tattoo on the other. And that sort of general idea of uh, American individualism and, and that, that sort of rugged uh, American spirit was very internalized to me, but when I started reading Marx and uh, it, like I said, around the same time that, that Bernie was taking the national stage for the first time, uh, I just remember reading it and, you know, wanting in a way to like have it be proven wrong or to poke holes in it. But it just all made a lot of sense to me. Uh, it just was hard. It became harder and harder to refute the more I actually dug into the material uh, and, and that was, you know, turned things upside down for me in a, in a, in a big way. Um, and it was definitely a confusing time. And I don't think by any means was I, you know, became a committed Marxist at that moment. Um, I can't speak for you, but for me, it was just the, the germination, uh, of, of, a, of a seed that, you know, would, would grow on or go on to, to, you know, grow into a full, full flower. Yeah, I certainly would not have walked out of that classroom and, and told everyone that I was a socialist. Uh, I, I certainly didn't feel that way. But then there were a few other uh, classes that I took that, that I guess started 
to use the analogy you're using, the, the germinating the seed. And one of those was, the class was violence and Irish literature, which mm. was one of the, my favorite classes I've ever taken. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we watched Liam Neeson movies and we read uh, <laughs> Irish mythology, the, the Toyn. Uh, Cahollan. Yeah, the legend of Cahollan, the hound. And <laughs> it was um, it was just a, an incredible class, but that was where I first was introduced to like the Easter Rising and your James Connollys and Patrick Pierce's. Um, and that is a, a very romantic kind of period. And I'm sure that there are, uh, you know, people who listen to this who will find that statement a little objectionable because it ended up begetting a lot of a lot of violence. Um, but when you read James Connolly, who was uh, an Irish socialist, who's an Irish Republican, who who was a socialist, and he uh, was one of the leaders in 1916 who started the, the Easter Rising to kind of cast off. British rule in Ireland. And he has this quote that I'm going to bastardize here because I don't have it in front of me. But he says that, you know, even if we send off the British today and we hoist the green flag over Dublin, like until we institute socialism, England will still rule us through her landlords and financiers. Right. And in reading that was kind of the first this is going to sound like really naive, but it was one of the first times that I'd really thought of um, kind of the global economy as, as a real force. You know, you, at that point I was thinking in terms of, of kind of politics without economics and it was just kind of taking things at face value. You know, a president says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to do this. And I go, okay, well, and it, Again, prior to this, I was raised conservative. So if they were Republican, I said, okay. And if they were Democrat, I said, no, you won't. Uh, <laughs> it, it was all just, my watch. just very face value stuff. I, I just yeah. took it for what they presented it as. But for the first time, I really started thinking of the economy as, as a function of politics and really the driver of politics. And I didn't have that, I think, at any point prior, prior to like really getting into those texts. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's much easier to see how that works today, I think. And even people on the right and the left can, you know, point to the, the, the forces that are outside of any uh, of our political control, whether it's, you know, bankers in Belgium and Geneva having an effect on our lives or, or just the global financial system at, at large. Uh, it, it's pretty clear that there are people who are, you know, completely unaccountable to our political system. Um, who have a really big control over our day-to-day -day lives, um, you know, and, and both parties obviously are heavily financed by the banking system uh, in, in this country. And, you know, uh, as, we, as we see things like, uh, you know, the eviction moratorium expiring, um, but that, that's the, the, people, the people who definitely won't lose in that deal are, are the bankers. Uh, you know, whether you're on the side of landlords and saying, oh, these, you know, poor people need to, you know, collect rent so they can pay their mortgages or you're on the side of the evicted and these people, you know, poor, we can't kick these poor people out of the streets, uh, you know, while a pandemic is still going on or, or at any time. Um, 
yet it what's clear is that you know no matter what happens uh, no matter which side of that debate you fall on the bankers will be fine uh they will you know whether if the uh people get evicted then great they'll still get their rents if uh, people don't get evicted and landlords can't pay their mortgages and they have to sell those homes well the people who are quickest to snap them up are the banks um so either way they they win um and you know, no, neither party is really interested in changing that system. But but back to kind of what you said about James Connolly, I think that was I, I remember that class and, and James Connolly being a, a pretty powerful developmental force on my thinking. Uh, but just that idea that a lot of these liberation movements that, you know, we like to talk about as, you know, forces for good. Uh, and especially in the United States and especially the United States Military Academy, pitching ourselves as, you know, liberators of the oppressed, it became really clear to me through entrances into some of our other favorite authors that the socialist movement was a major part of a lot of those liberation movements. Um, you know, obviously, socialism was a, a big force uh, and on, on some of the thinkers in the uh, Irish independence. Um, but, you know, a lot of our early favorite authors like Hemingway and Orwell um, and these other and some of these other guys is, is they were fighting, you know, alongside the socialists and anarchists in you know, fascist Spain. Um, and that 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 story often gets told of, oh, these Americans went over to like help, you know, uh, fight for the freedom of the Spanish without the actual context of their sort of ideological convictions um, and as much as people like to point to Orwell as being anti-communist, that's, that's just not true. Uh, Orwell himself was a socialist. Um, although I don't agree with everything he, he did or said right. in his life, he was ideologically a socialist. Um, I, I remember, what was that, that other book that, um, that Orwell wrote, uh, that kind of was informed, uh, his, his thinking on the, those subjects. So, yeah. Uh, I think you're talking about, uh, was it Down and Out in Paris and London? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that, yeah, that's actually one that I read uh, in another class that I took at West Point. And, and I promise you, uh, dear <laughs> listener, that as we talk about these classes that we took at West Point, remember that these are about classes of, of 12 people in a school yeah. of like 4,400. Um, so this is not the standard education that someone who goes to West Point is going to come out with. Uh, and most of these classes were electives too. So you, you had to seek them <laughs> out and they <laughs> were niche, we'll say. Right. Uh, but this class was, uh, when I signed up for it, it was just um, British literature from the 18th through the 20th century or something along those lines. Um, and I needed an, an elective and I didn't like the other ones that were offered. So I signed up for that one. And then when I, when I got there, they, they gave out the syllabus and what they, the instructor decided to focus on for that, for that semester was uh, working class literature, working class British literature uh, in the, through the 18th and 20th centuries. So we started with uh, a poet named John Clare who like, taught himself how to write. Um, and so like his poetry, he'd misspelled the same word like different ways multiple times throughout like a poem. <laughs> and he was... He could be real hard to read, but, you know, he's just talking about, you know, about work. And then, yeah, Orwell's down and out in Paris and London. 
it's a, a memoir about poverty in both of those cities. And he's just kind of tramping around uh, being very, very poor. And I think to us too, I remember reading that and it being, although I didn't take that class, but you know, Orwell was someone who had served the crown in the, uh, in the vice royalty of, of India um, oh, yeah. in a military capacity uh, became, you know, sort of very disillusioned with uh, British colonialism um, and, and, and through his experiences being poor uh, when upon his, upon his return, you know, that, that informed his his political thinking um but that was i mean it was just a shock to me as i'm sure it is a shock to most listeners that orwell was a socialist in the first place because you know I mean, we're always told oh 1984 and animal farm like right oh he's, he, orwell's a libertarian you know he's, he's, he's often cited by the don't tread on me crowd as uh you know a, a primary source for what the dangers and the evils of communism um but in, in reality that you know, that was more criticism of specifically the Soviet Union, but not the ideological backing or backbone behind it. Yeah, just think about how many times you've heard uh, anything pertaining to the vaccine or like shutdowns as Orwellian. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think Orwell probably would have taken the vaccine. Exactly. That's, exactly. that's safe to say. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, but and, and you talked about... Um, Ernest Hemingway, who's been my favorite for a long time. And yeah, Hemingway was, was in Spain for the Spanish Civil War with Orwell and um, uh, John Dos Passos and a lot of other um, kind of influential socialists as well as just writers during that time, authors during that time. Um, he's split with Dos Passos later because Dos Passos became much more explicitly communist and, and Hemingway wasn't necessarily on board with that. But he remained like a, a staunch critic of of the United States and the the way we wield our power. And he was a, a friend of Cuba. Um, he, he loved Cuba greatly. And you know, later in life, when he was you know paranoid and and re- receiving electroshock therapy because he was telling his wife and friends that the he was being chased or being tailed by the FBI. And they said, you're crazy. No, you're not. So they had him receive electroshock therapy to the point where at the end of his life, he said, you know, all I have, something along the lines of all I have are my memories and some of them I don't even have. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's probably our future. Um, yeah, it, 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 and, then, <laughs> and then, you know, years after his suicide, it's revealed that the FBI was absolutely tailing at him. They, they had a lengthy file on him because they were worried about him cozying up to, to Cuba. And, and so there's like a very rich history in, in the U.S. of writers that have been kind of, their legacy has been whitewashed pretty severely. Right. Um, but of writers who are critical of, of the way that the U.S. does business and then repression of them by, you know, intelligence or federal law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, Hemingway, I think, is, is sort of, plastered on our, our propaganda of this country to a certain extent is like that that quintessential american um you know a uh, rough and tumble type brawny dude who uh you know lives lives the american way uh without really talking about his his 
empathy for for the poor and oppressed um and yeah. and his desire to see you know the success of liberation struggles like like that in cuba um which reminds me of another one that uh, libertarians love um and and i loved uh which is hunter s thompson <laughs> um and you know it's it's definitely cliche to oh yeah this, these are the guys who like Ernest Hemingway and Hunter S. Thompson but keep in mind we were you know we were developing uh, at this time but at, I mean at this time in our our lives I believe we did think ourselves too weird to live and too rare to die that's true that is true and the jury's still out on that um <laughs> But, uh, you know, we were, although we were Hunter S. Thompson uh, loved his guns and loved his freedom uh, to do what he wanted, um, he's also extremely critical of the American system, of, of the influence of money on politics, of the sort of used car uh, salesman attitude of, of this country where everything is for sale, um, but, but nothing is uh uh, but but nothing is freely available to you really you know the, everything is for sale except the things that are the most important and those are only for sale to the richest among us um those those who have the least uh or the or uh, yeah the least qualms about you know lying manipulating exploiting um and you know although i wouldn't say he was exactly a died in the wool socialist by any means uh he ran on the uh, freak power ticket uh, in Aspen, Colorado for sheriff, uh, in the, uh, 1960s, uh, and would have won if the democratic candidate in the race hadn't, uh, backed out of the race and given all their votes over to the Republican side. And, and his platform was to, uh, tear up the streets of Aspen, Colorado and put in grass. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't quite so explicitly political, but it was about giving, the public back to the public um which there's is that, there's that great video of him at his home in aspen i believe he's got a cigarette in his mouth and a luger in his hand and he's in a gunfight with his neighbor and uh, <laughs> you can hear birdshot coming in like hitting all around him and uh he's just yelling at his neighbor like uh birdshot you have to do better than that and he's just like firing back with the Luger. And he looks at the camera and goes, this is our country, not some used car salesman from California. We got to fight for it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, that, that reminds me of another great uh, piece of, of media that is often used for, uh, you know, a counter to its original purposes, which is that, that amazing song that still holds a lot of, holds a lot of power today. This land is your land. Um, uh, you know, uh, that is another thing that I think is often co-opted by the right um, or, or, you know, the traditionalists in this country is like American folk music. Um, and everyone from Woody Guthrie to Pete Seeger, uh, even even our, our oldest country musicians, um, although they weren't all exactly explicitly socialists, they were all, uh, you know, it was about the, uh, you know, this land is your land is about how this land belongs to all of us. And uh, Woody Guthrie was an explicit communist. Um, and it's, you know, you hear that song at your average 4th of July parade or, or picnic or, or what have you, but without any of the context behind it. Yeah, you, you talked about this land is your land and that's Woody Guthrie, a son of Oklahoma, where 
where I'm recording this episode from right now. And the, I mean, yeah, if you continue the verses of that song out, you'll, you'll read, you know, much more explicit kind of uh, socialist ideals that, that you often don't include in the U S you often don't hear those verses when, when we perform, but he's got another song that uh, tear the fascists down. Are you familiar with that one? I, I, yeah, I think I've heard of it, but you, you have it. But, yeah, I'll see if I can't get some of the audio in the uh, in the episode here. So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets, the allies, the whole wide world around. To the battling British tanks, you can have 10 million yanks if it takes them to tear the fascists down, down, down. If it takes them to tear the fascists down. So I thank the Soviets and the mighty Chinese vets, the allies, the whole wide world around. To the battling British thanks, you can have 10 million yanks if it takes them to tear the fascist down, down, down. Uh, That's, and, uh, yeah, you don't get much more. <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, they don't play that one at the 4th of July. Thing. No, you don't hear that one a lot. Uh, yeah, Woody Guthrie, incredible. Uh, but I think we, we probably have gotten a little off track here. Um, but, but going back to... So we, we've taken different classes that have kind of brought us to some level of awareness uh, or some level of, at the very least, questioning. Uh, and then comes graduation. We go off and uh, are doing our own things for a while. And one of the first things that, uh, you know, I was kind of late to the, the podcasting scene. A lot of people were listening to podcasts for a long time before I ever got into it. I preferred to listen to music in my car. But then when I moved to Georgia, I was commuting an hour to work every day because I didn't want to live in Hinesville, Georgia. And I'd rather live in Savannah like any thinking person would. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I had to branch out and start listening to, to podcasts. And one of the first ones that I started getting into, really mirroring how this all started for us in the first place, was Philosophize This. Yeah. Uh, I mean can't recommend it highly enough. Um, the, the host, he really takes kind of complex philosophical concepts and breaks them down into a way that's very understandable, uh, really accessible for, for the lay person, even if you have no background in it, he, he does a really great job. Um, and it does not the, take any position by any means. Uh, in, in yes. Yeah. yeah, he's, he's very even handed, I would say. Uh, but one episode that stuck out to me, and I remember we listened to this in the car one time after um, after a trip to St. Augustine. We were driving back to, to Savannah together because you and I were living together at the time. Hmm. Uh, and this was the episode on Simulacra and Simulation, Jean Baudrillard. Hmm. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. That was a... Uh, yeah. It, it, helpful to enter into that uh that philosophical school of thought through someone you know explaining it to you a little bit because the the actual book itself is not to be not to be read lightly say that no it's a it's a very small book but it's dense yeah and uh you might might notice it because it's uh you might know of it because it makes a a very short appearance in the first matrix movie that's um, right actually and is is sort of the the idea or like you know the that movie is basically based on the book sort of 
the philosophically at least. Yeah. And, but what I loved about the episode is it, it, it doesn't talk so much about, um, you know, the world we live in, we're living as some like computer simulation, but it talks about how all of us are basically a simulation in that we now have so much media just at our fingertips, whether it, you know, it be uh, books, you know, and right now we're here talking about how media has influenced us. So, you know, a stunning endorsement there. Um, (laughs) But, but, you know, books, TV, movies, video games, music, all this stuff, we, we take it in and we learn from it whether or not we realize we are, we're, we're picking up examples on how to act so that when we, you know, you're, you're at a bar and you see a, a girl you want to talk to, you start, you know, whether you're aware of it or not kind of running through, uh, you're looking at all these different examples of like what Don Draper might do or of like all these other examples. And, you know, that's, that's a cheesy one. Uh, but like all these, you have seen a million guys approach girls at bars through media. And so you have some idea of like what it should look like when you go make this introduction. And so you're not doing this of your own volition, you know, you're choosing to do it, but you've been influenced by so many things that you're just simulating everything else. And so when I, when I started listening to that, I just, again, was, how much of what I believe is just kind of cultural detritus that I've picked up, like just the flotsam and jetsam of of American society that I've picked up through, you know, watching all my, like, you know, first PG-13 movie I ever watched with Men in Black 2. How much of that is still just like rattling around in my head, like ready to come out at a moment's notice. Will Smith is smooth, what can you say? Um, That was... I learned all my dating tips from Hitch, actually. Uh, <laughs> Good. <That's, laughs> if I remember that that movie is all about uh, how his tips really work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, hey, he ends up with Eva Longoria, so if if that uh, if that's any indication, I think it worked out okay for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Moral of the story. For me, I'm, it's still a work in progress, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think too with, with Simulacra and Simulation, um, a, a big part of that book that and, and Baudrillard in general that, that stuck with me is as people who were in the army um, and at West Point, I was listening to that great Sergio Simpson song called Arms the other day. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, and it's talking about how, you know, the, he was in the Navy and, and how the military in general strips you about your identity um and, and and tries to you know give you a new you know pre-packaged one that you can just put on like like everyone else in, in the military um but it, it runs a little bit deeper than that in sim- simulacra and simulation because he I, I guess i began to realize through reading it how much of my identity was based off of all my consumer choices Right. Um, and, and that was, you know, very alienating to me at the time and, and, and definitely, you know, gave me a queasy feeling in my stomach because when we, when we really think about it, um, so much of who we project out to the world is what we wear, uh, the types of things we buy, the types of things we eat. Um, and, and some of those things are inescapable in, in a certain sense, but, um, but Baudrillard, it, you know, talks about how, 
the more of your life is taken up, uh, the more of your identity is, is uh, the more your identity is uh, made up of all the things you buy, the less there really is any authentic self at all. Right. Um, and, and that was, you know, kind of a wake up call to me uh, to a certain extent of, of, and it, you know, nowadays it's pretty much inescapable. I mean, you can't really, even if you wear uh, name brand clothing or not name brand clothing, you know, store brand uh, clothing that doesn't have any labels on it or, or doesn't that, that too projects an identity. Um, but even if you just wear a little polo shirt with that little, uh, you know, little insignia on the front that tells everyone in your orbit a little bit about you um, or, or a little bit about what you're trying to project as, as who is, who am I? Um, and then I, I began to, you know, really think of myself as well. Am I just a walking advertisement for, you know, a certain lifestyle, a uh, certain lifestyle brand? Um, and Alex would probably say, yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that brand is necessarily, but uh, but if you see a billboard with with Cyrus's whole kind of steez on it, you should you should steer clear. <laughs> it's certainly yeah, it uh, it, it's given me a lot of trouble, um, and that too I think is you know a lot of the reason people steer clear of of philosophy. Um, you know, in a, I think there's there's a letter that Hunter S. Thompson wrote to a friend um, in, in one of his early years. Um, and, and the friend was asking about, you know, some existentialist texts and some other philosophical and, and political texts. And, uh, and Hunter S. Thompson, you know, replied to him in this letter saying, you know, yeah, I mean, there's great stuff in there. Uh, but if if you really don't, unless you are really confused and really don't want and really dissatisfied with, with, you know, the, the way the world makes sense to you, maybe don't get into philosophy kind of better to let sleep. I think he says better, best to let sleeping dogs lie. Um, <laughs> because yeah. it is, uh, you know, as, as you read a lot of these texts, they do kind of shatter your understanding, your previous understandings of, of how the world operates. And, uh, if, if you're ready for that journey, well, I, I, I don't, I can't say I recommend it, but, uh, it definitely, uh, made me a more thoughtful and, and, and a curious person today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so far we've kind of kept it at the level of, you know, philosophy, pretty ephemeral immaterial kind of concepts. Um, but just to, to bring it back to the material for a bit. It was uh, kind of my first year or two in the army. And I, I was just talking to all these soldiers that I interacted with on a daily basis and, and hearing their stories and hearing why it was that they joined the army. And it was, and it was stories about how, you know, one guy had, uh, had a child with special needs that, he could not afford the care that was, that was required. And so he, he joined the army for the healthcare and, and even like the choice of location, you know, his base was, it was the closest base to like the best specialist, you know, for, for that particular uh, special need. And then there were, there were so many people who were just in the army because they, they needed cash 
uh, for, for whatever reason. Yeah, and been a lot of signing bonuses since uh, 9-11. And a yeah. lot of those have been on uh, Mustangs with, you know, 15% interest rates. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of those are spent on, on just the, the needs uh, that, that people have. Yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of people also are in the military because they want their college paid for. Um, yeah. You know, we've, we've got a mutual friend. So when I went to high school with, and you, you met later on who joined the Navy right out of high school uh, because he wanted to go to the Culinary Institute of America uh, in upstate New York, um, like Poughkeepsie. Maybe that's not upstate. Uh, up river. Yeah. Up, up, up the Hudson. And so he, he didn't have the money for it, but he knew that the Culinary Institute had a program that they would cover whatever the GI Bill didn't. So the only way that he saw, you know, to, to reach his dreams of, of going to the Culinary Institute of America was becoming a cook in the Navy aboard an aircraft carrier for four years. And he left there, went to the Culinary Institute and, you know, and got that paid for and so the more I was thinking about it and I was just hearing all these people's stories of why they joined the military, whether it was college, healthcare, or just, you know, just to have the money to get by, you know, housing too. The military covers a, a good amount of housing based on the cost of living in your area. And so just thinking about those things, I was like, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy that in order to have your healthcare, college, and housing taken care of in the United States, you have to put those three things at risk. If you want healthcare, you have to put your body on the line. Yeah. Like if you want uh, a future by going to college, you have to put your future on the line and you have to delay all of that while you spend at least, you know, four or five years in the army. If you, if you want your housing to be covered, well, listen, there are like countless homeless vets out there right now. It's like, so the, the only way to get those things guaranteed to you, you know, for at least the time that you're in is to risk the very thing that you're trying to gain from it. It's like, these are just things that she, people should have no matter their, you know, their status of, of being in the military. Uh, and, and, and one of the other things that you get when you have all of those three things is peace of mind. When you have, you know, tuition, housing, healthcare, you have peace of mind. And so in order to get peace of mind, you have to join an organization that is notorious for breaking people's brains. Yeah, not just notorious for breaking people's brains, too, but the things that it asks you to do abroad. And, you know, the like you said, that, that peace of mind is a pretty critical factor. And I would say that is the number one biggest reason why anybody joins the military is they're coming from a situation of a lot of financial insecurity and precarity. Right. And they join the military because it offers sort of the things that at least a robust social welfare state offers healthcare, uh, food, housing, um, family support, um, those types of things. And, you know, we could, we could argue about how well they do all that. Uh, I'd say not very, but, um, but at the same time, that is a big draw for a lot of people. 
But, you know, our, our most recent, you know, major conflicts in the Middle East and, and, and Iraq specifically, you know, six, I don't know if people know this, but, you know, 600,000 to a million Iraqis died um, in the Iraq war. And that was, that, that was, those, those deaths were executed by people who joined the military, some for patriotic reasons, but a lot for reasons of financial security, because they were people who were just poor and didn't have many other options. And their only option to provide somewhat of a, you know, decent living for themselves was to go abroad uh, to these other places. And whether you think it's justified or not, you know, participate in the killing of, of not only combatants, but civilians as well. Right. It's, it's like a, um, it's treated almost like a zero sum game. If you think about it, like yeah. if, if you want, uh, if you want housing, well, then you have to go bomb these houses in Iraq. <laughs> right. If you yeah. want your, you know, your future provided for, you have to go deprive these people of futures themselves. Uh, and healthcare. All right, let's. We're not going to get into drone striking hospitals today, but, <laughs> but like, in order for you to have these things, you have to go deprive people far away who you never would have interacted with, had would have never had any impact on your life otherwise. You have to go make sure they can't have those things. And and by and large, are, are subject to the same forces that are outside of their control that that you are. Uh, right. You know the the. the the poor of Iraq and, and the poor of the United States obviously live very different lives, but uh, your reason for being there and their reason for being subjected to us being there are, you know, a lot of the same interests uh, working to make that happen. You know, and that in the case of the Middle East, it's fossil fuels, the, uh, you know, most expensive commodity in the world um, and amongst other things, but. Yeah. It's probably uh, also worth mentioning that it's the, the exact same people uh, who are creating both of those situations, you know, not to name any particular names, but uh, you know, the, the Saddam's of the world are typically pretty tight with the Bushes of the world. Yeah. Yeah. People may not realize that, that, uh, that Bush and Saddam, they go way back. Yeah. Um, they used to, they, they were homies for a long time. Um, and, you know, I don't think that that should be too much of a surprise to anyone. The United States supports right. dictators when it's convenient for them. And then when, uh, you know, oil prices start to increase a little bit too much, they, they might you know, have a little bit of a change of heart, which, as we all know, the Bush family made, made their money through, through petroleum. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, all, seeing all those things intersecting and being really at the heart, which I would argue, uh, you know, in many ways, West Point is the synthesis of like American corporate culture and American military culture. Uh, you know, most, most, most fortune 500 CEOs out of any school in the country come from, from, from West Point. I don't think that's any accident. It's, and it's largely because those, the systems are so intertwined. Yeah. How many foreign heads of state have also graduated from West Point? Exactly. And yeah, domestic they, heads of state. I mean, number of presidents number of presidents yeah and if, if you think that you know those heads of government don't have any influence over the global financial system well i got a bridge to sell you yeah i sat in a chemistry class with a saudi prince for a semester <laughs> yes yeah i remember that there and there, he wasn't the only one there either 
Yeah, uh, I, I still remember I was friends with with uh, his roommate and I, I won't use any names, but um, the, the Saudi prince would take leave on weekends and he would leave the bands like um, that he would use to keep his like rolls of money together. He would leave to go to New York City on a weekend and he would leave the band itself on his roommate's desk before he left. Just without the money. Yeah, no money, just the band. <laughs> oh man, that's a real power move. I, I yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you know, as as we all know, Saudi Arabia is not exactly a, a beacon of freedom and democracy in the world. Um, uh, I mean, how many of the uh, the hijackers in nine eleven were from Saudi Arabia? Uh, pretty much all of them, but maybe one or two weren't um and, and yet those those are the types of people that they consider you know friends of the united states um and and a a willing partner an eager partner in our you know global order that we we more or less dominate um and it's just it's just very nakedly evident at a place like west point that 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 is the way the system works yeah absolutely well, I, you know, we are starting to run a little long here. Uh, so we ought to consider starting to wrap things up. Um, so Cyrus, what, uh, what are you up to? What, what good new things can you share with us? Oh, you know, well, I'm uh, getting situated here in uh, New York City, the heart of global capitalism. Um, the, uh, as, as Jose Marti said, the uh, belly of the beast you can see its entrails um and and but beyond that i'm uh i'm just kind of trying to enjoy the city a little bit see what it has to offer i've been reading quite a bit lately um fabulous book which might be an interesting uh segue to another uh you know really good podcast but i'm reading a book called uh, black jacobins which is about the haitian yeah. revolution um and that's a really good history of of the way that early capitalism, you know, was fully financed and, and, and not, not financed exactly, but, but that its foundations were built upon the backs of slaves in the Caribbean and the American South um, and the struggle for those people for independence, um, not only from their French colonial oppressors, but from the influence of, of British and American financiers, uh, you know, really, really good example of kind of what you were just talking about. Yeah, no, that, that sounds, that sounds very interesting. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Are you uh, reading anything good lately? Yeah. I'm uh, nearly through reading um, bullshit jobs by David Graeber, which oh, yeah, it's a, doozy. a really good book. I was texting you about it earlier, like a couple of weeks ago or maybe a week ago saying that it was uh, real theory light. Um, and that was a ruse apparently it's like the first two thirds of this book are very approachable and uh, just kind of insightful about the jobs that exist just because that they exist in society. You know, the, um, the middle managers who are, can't really justify their own position, but by virtue of them having that position have to pretend that it's very important and vital. Um, but then in the last third of the book, he gets into some theory and you know, maybe this is naive of me too, you know, as someone who calls myself a socialist, but I never actually knew the origin of the word proletariat. Uh, it's probably something that you've, you've come across before. 
Enlighten us. It was uh, those, like the word means those who produce offspring. Uh, so because in Roman society, these were people that um, the, like the elites only saw these people as they weren't uh, economically uh, productive, but they had children that could be conscripted. And so that was their whole function, you know, in Roman society was they produced offspring and those offspring were, uh, you know, thrown into the, the gears of war. Provide fodder for the empire. Exactly. Exactly. Don't know anything about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've never seen anything similar uh, in, in any American culture. But yeah, besides that, we're, we've been doing a lot of uh, dog sitting at our house got about five dogs running around right now uh, a couple of weeks ago we had 10 at one time uh, and that creates new situations every single day uh, the other day i got bit by a corgi but i've learned with corgis now uh that you have to hold them like you would a snake right behind the head <laughs> they'll turn around and they'll get you the, they'll nip yeah uh yeah yeah, you know, you know my thoughts on small dogs. Not the, uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. So can't trust them. Your cash on the side, it helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like the ankle biters. Well, uh, you know that said, like I said, we're running a little bit long, but I will uh, lead us off here with, or leave us off here rather with uh, that last second verse of the uh, the Woody Guthrie, "This land is your land," um, which people probably aren't familiar with. Um says, as I went walking, I saw a sign there. And on the sign, it said no trespassing. But on, it, but on the other side, it didn't say nothing. That side was made for you and me. In the shadow of the steeple, I saw my people. By the relief office, I seen my people. As they stood there hungry, I stood there asking, is this land made for you and me? Um, other than that, man, I'm really glad uh, you were able to join me today. We'll have to do it again soon. Yep, great to be here. Much love, man. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, and I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, the dust clouds rolling, the voice coming chanting. Fog was lifting This land was made for you and me